HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're delighting in the creepy, the spooky, the skin-crawling aspects of food history and culture. Give yourself over to man's more hedonistic tendencies and you wouldn't be making it to the great beyond. The Sin Eater's job was to ensure that you did. In modern horror, audiences have been captivated by the isolation, mystery, and terror of rural life. And so one of these preparations is, is actually taking oak bark, stuffing it into a cow skull, and burying that cow skull in a creek for a year. I would argue that their evil went hand-in-hand hand with their marketing strategy. I'm not saying they had an excuse, but in order to make bananas work, they were deluded. They had to do these terrible things. Listen to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast with Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome culinary journalist and award-winning food writer, Tony Tipton-Martin. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Tony about what her new book, Jubilee, celebrates, breaking the Jemima code, and we'll hear Tony's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, in our first segment, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia wasn't exactly an historian. She did her homework, but it was usually in the context of understanding the here and now. Mastering the art of French cooking was about bringing centuries of French cooking principles and recipes into the American present. Julia's The Way to Cook was a collection of what she'd learned about modern American cooking. 
And while Julia didn't write historical books, culinary history was still important to her. So much so that research into culinary history is a tenet of what the foundation supports. Someone with a like-minded devotion to exploring American food history is culinary journalist Tony Tipton Martin. Starting with her James Beard Award-winning book, The Jemima Code, a chronicle of historical African-American cookbooks, she has been on a mission to understand the true story of African-Americans' cooking contributions. Her quest led led her to a treasure trove of recipes and traditions much more diverse than the conventional wisdom around soul food. She's now brought these delicious and sophisticated discoveries together in a new cookbook entitled Jubilee, Recipes from Two Centuries of African-American Cooking. In addition to her writing, Tony Tipton Martin is the first African-American woman to be the food editor at a major American daily newspaper, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and her unique collection of more than 300 African-American cookbooks has been exhibited at the James Beard House. She's also a founding member of the Southern Foodways Alliance and Foodways Texas. In our continuing good fortune to be able to introduce you to the authors of this fall's best new cookbooks, Tony's here to talk to us about Jubilee, and we get to continue this season's conversation about who has helped make American food history. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. Oh, thanks so much, Todd. I'm really excited to be here. We're excited to have you here. So congratulations on Jubilee. I think one of the things that sums up just on its own merits as a cookbook, the, the recipes, I would describe them as looking very sumptuous. And I also think it's in many ways a celebration of a lot of what everyone would consider American classics. So well done on that. And I wanted to start with, tell us who Arturo Schomburg was and how did he help you put this cookbook together? Well, thanks for the question, and I do have to uh, just segue a little bit, if you don't mind, um, because I want to commend you for that choice of words in describing these as sumptuous recipes. Um, It's a really a cool coincidence that just yesterday at my first book signing, um, as we were trying to help readers really come to understand what is the difference between Southern and Soul and what I'm promoting, Sumptuous is the word that we chose. So good on you. That's the just absolute right assessment of, of this. Zeitgeist. Work. Um, zeitgeist it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, speaking of sumptuousness and, and delicious recipes, Arthur, Arturo Schomburg was um, a well-respected, renowned um, historian and scholar in the 1930s. Um, the New York Public Library actually has named its African-American heritage collection in Harlem after him. And he wrote this really impressive book proposal, an outline for a collection that would represent the entire canon as he saw it of African-American foodways and recipes. Um, The collection or the listing did not include recipes per se. There was only one recipe in it. But my gosh, it was such a comprehensive list of dishes that um, really helped to frame what we should be thinking about when we try to assemble and reassemble the history of African-American cooks in this country and so much of our cooking that was um, embedded in the American style, marginalized and otherwise just lost in history. 
And and what was his what was his profession or how how did he come to sort of put this list together? And and we're talking about what the list is what more than fifty seventy years old. Yes, and it as I said, it was four hundred to six hundred recipes that um, he, as a scholar, uh, called from his research and understanding of the African American experience, and so he was able to trace our cooking. Um, through that, the diaspora, but also um, he researched and looked at what our experience had been in the States and uh, discovered a lot, two, two strains really of um, experience that African-American uh, food people had had, one in the survival type of an experience like in the kitchen as the enslaved, um, who would have been working with meager supplies and uh, trying to make something from nothing. And what he offers us that we haven't previously been discussing and what turned out to be the basis of Jubilee was a look at the food that professionals prepared at work. And these would still include the enslaved. We don't often think about the classical training of uh, the folks that were enslaved in plantation kitchens or people that were restaurateurs or even mixologists. There were barkeeps um, during uh, this country's early years. And and the great um, scholar, Schomburg, took note of that and uh, recorded this proposal for a book which was never published. And how how did you come across uh, his pro- book proposal? Was it something that was held in a library, or how did you discover even that? Well, it is held um, at the Schomburg Library, as I said, in New, or- in, uh, New York. Um, I encountered the um, proposal um, as an appendix and a reference in uh, the book Black Hunger um, as part of my self-education um, and desire to broaden our understanding of African-American food ways, um, I set out on a course of um, self-education in the areas of American studies and Southern studies and women's and gender studies and African-American studies. Um, and that's where I discovered so much of the reference material that I use. And one of those resources was uh, a book called Black Hunger by Doris Witt, and she makes reference to this incredible um, proposal. And so I visited the Schomburg and looked for it. That, that's such a, a neat sort of, well, obviously it helps being a journalist by training to be to know how to like investigate one lead to another. But I, I love this sort of like mystery and fulfillment that that you know is it's a rather unusual backstory for a cookbook and then i also thought in jubilee you talk about that there are certain maybe they're dishes sometimes they're recipes that come into form in different ways but that there's a certain kind of recurring theme and pattern to what you define as or have come to define as african-american cooking that you chronicled in jubilee could you talk a little bit about what that is and what you found Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, so this, and it, a lot of it does revolve around the Schomburg list. And so I'm so grateful that you've um, inserted that into our conversation because it does form a unique um, style for this book, which turns out to be 
more history book than a cookbook is traditionally, and certainly contains more recipes than any history book ever would. So it's this peculiar but delicious and wonderful hybrid. Um, and a lot of that is because of this Schomburg research. Um, and so um, Schomburg's list, with all with some 600 recipes, um, I was overwhelmed initially with how to capture that without creating this really big um, Bible, if you will, of, of African-American food. Um, and also in trying to reproduce some of these dishes that he traced back to the 18th century. You know, there's just some ingredients that no longer exist. There were measurements that were vague and in, and not easy to translate into modern kitchens. And so I struggled with that initially and what would be the best way to tell the fullness of the story to help readers follow the migration period, the process for these dishes and to understand how traits that would have um, been traditions in Africa and in the diaspora, how did those, um, those, culinary habits, if you will, um, embed themselves in the food of the U.S. And so what we did was start with the Schomburg list. I um, used that as a platform to trace 100 dishes across the books in my rare book collection. And those that recurred more and more often and persisted into the modern cookbooks of today were the basis for those that I chose to represent in Jubilee. And maybe give us some examples, because one of the things I think I have new reverence for mac and cheese from the book, because I think you really, maybe that's not the example you would choose, but I feel like you elevated it having way more meaning than a box from Kraft. And I I don't know if you want to talk about that, but you you very much talked about the cultural significance of, of that dish and its history. Right. And one of the things that um, was so much fun for me to put together was to determine which recipes ultimately would go into the book and which adaptation, right? Would it be the 19th century representation of macaroni and cheese or would it be the modern dish that most people are familiar with? And so I made a calculation along the way. If a dish like macaroni and cheese, which most people associate with the food of the South or the soul food canon, um, I asked myself as a journalist whether we needed one more recipe for standard macaroni and cheese. Um, But I contrasted that with the origins of that dish, which are rooted in Thomas Jefferson's Monticello home where uh, he had a French-trained chef, James Hemmings, who has now been recognized as... um, responsible for the American version of what was a dish of thin pasta, um, really good high-quality butter, and Parmesan cheese. And um, that is the, the that dish is the uh, precursor to what we know as African-American or as American uh, macaroni and cheese. And it's interesting, just this week I had... Um, uh, Jose Andres has on his menu in Georgetown, D.C. area, he has a macaroni and cheese made with vermicelli noodles. And that's the dish that would have most likely um, captured 
the James Hemmings version. Um, but I decided to to follow the this further into um, the future and look at other ways African-Americans had adapted macaroni and cheese. And one of those ways was to create a bechamel sauce. So the classic white sauce um, was at one point the way that the dish was made when obviously cooks had a lot more time on their hands. But today, the shortcut of that is that many of our modern black cookbooks use um, eggs and sour cream. And so what you see in my version today, the book, the recipe that's in Jubilee, has all of that history, and it celebrates the unique plot lines along the timeline of the dish, but ultimately we went with a dish that would be more um, familiar to everyone. Yeah, no, I mean, I just think it's like, who knew macaroni and cheese was that... Um... Uh, that fascinating and had such a such a I mean I think it, it, what's interesting is too I think you've woven together for for us that how much mac and cheese is you know a, a dish that's claimed maybe as part of the soul food canon as you said but is also a dish that had you know as far as you can tell it's inventions with James Cummings in, in Monticello but is you know what's more American than mac and cheese overall Right. And, and that is um, part of the struggle uh, also that I had um, as a food professional and as a journalist. Um, you know, a lot of cookbooks are just are they are reflections of a family history or a, a tradition that is very close. And the African-American traditions are complicated. The story of our food is complex. We were not um, immigrants to this country. And so we did not publicly, visibly display our traditions, but they were still present and embedded in what we know as the American food canon. And so I knew that people coming to this would perhaps feel um, territorial, right? Like, well, my family eats macaroni and cheese too. How can you say that's African-American? And, you know, what I've been saying to people carefully um, on the road, as well as in the book, the water that came out of those water fountains was the same water, and we labeled them white and colored historically. And we've reached a place in history now where we really have to understand so many of the practices in this country that have been used to divide us, and food is certainly one of those. It's a form of power, executing power, one group over another. And so I've just tried with Jubilee to show the diversity in an African-American style, and hopefully it engages us in even further discussion and inspires people to take the conversation to the next level and look even closer at dishes that are traditions in regionally, um, you know, or just in, in individual families. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you think, and and I think it's obviously telling, given what you said, that you called the book Jubilee, which is is you know certainly a sign and, and symbol of celebration. And was one of your goals to use this book to kind of help, um, maybe I don't know if it's cement or as you say, start the conversation. I'm not quite sure where we are on that spectrum yet, but in terms of enshrining African American cultural contributions in the food world in a way that maybe they're not yet on par, and this took some time too, but I, I think we're at least close to there with 
those contributions in the the history of American sports or American music? Uh, sure. Um, what I would like, though, is um, for us to, if we're going to think about um, African-American food um, and ways that we can enshrine it and what the comparable would be, I would like for us to respect and revere African-American cooks in just the same ways that we do other cultural and regional world cuisines, right? What I'm describing for African-Americans isn't all that different from other hyphenated cultures. You know, we have Italian-American dishes and we have German-American dishes. And what I want us to be able to do is respect African-Americans in the same way. Um, And so in that way, I am not um, making huge leaps um, in terms of um, the types of dishes that are in Jubilee, um, in making claims, let me let me reframe that. I'm not making claims that these are overly fancified dishes. They're not going to be chefy foods. A lot of these are going to be familiar dishes to certain people in certain regions who have not previously seen themselves reflected in cookbooks published in this country um, that have dwelled on the soul canon. Right, and I was one of those. We just my family's experiences in the West were not part of the the, the publishing tradition, and uh, that led me initially to have to self-publish my work in the same way that my ancestors did. Um, so, if I want anything out of this in terms of um, uh, an enshrinement, it would be for us to be considered on on par with every other cultural. Um, canon and author in any bookstore so that that's a question that none of us have to face from publishers again so is is what you're saying partly that you also want sort of a broadening of the soul or even a, a reclassification of the soul food definition which has certain connotations to saying that certain dishes like mac and cheese or i think gumbo maybe is a good example because it's often classed as new orleans cuisine when i think in your presentation you're talking about you want people to understand the 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 cultural contribution made by african americans in the creation of gumbo as an american New Orleans, Louisiana dish. Is that is that what you're saying, or am I misunderstanding it? No, I think that's perfectly accurate. Um, African-American food has been narrowly defined and limited only to a soul canon, and then other dishes have been embedded regionally or in some other way of describing them. So the gumbo is a perfect example. Um, but something like jambalaya, which is also Creole in Louisiana, in, um, derives from Louisiana and the Carolina Low Country, that dish has can be traced to the cracked rice tradition in West Africa and the jollof rice experience. And so, yes, I would like for us to broaden our thoughts and our thinking about what it what really constitutes an African-American canon. I don't think that we're fully there yet. I've just begun this process, you know, to open our eyes through the lens of what the cookbook authors say is their legacy. And there will be so many more, I think, um, opportunities for us to explore this and to go deeper regionally. Um, 
which is why I chose to term Jubilee as my title, that we're all free now from the constraint of the narrow definition of soul food. I also ultimately think we will circle back and um, make reappropriate the term soul so that it is more inclusive. But for the time being, um, Adrian Miller and I have this conversation a lot that we are um, two sides of the same coin um, in trying to develop a respect and a reverence for the African-American food in total, if that makes sense. It does. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to get more insights on African-American cooking from Tony Tipton-Martin. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on -on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. Welcome back. We're talking to culinary journalist and author Tony Tipton Martin about her new book, Jubilee, and how it helps redefine African American food. So I think, Tony, given what we were discussing, um, I think it's useful to also talk about the Jemima Code because we we talked sort of a lot about the the new book and food, but we haven't talked about, I think, the other aspect of your um, work, which is who was cooking it and the cooks themselves. So one thing I wanted to discuss with you is for you to tell us what 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 you meant when you titled your prior book the Jemima Code and how did you what what were you setting out and using that um, very loaded phrase, if you will. And um, so tell us about what that means. Right, the Jemima Code is a very loaded phrase, and that that title was also chosen. Uh, with intentionality, um, because I wanted to capture what I was discovering in my research to be a love-hate relationship with African-American women in the kitchen. And um, it 
appeared to me that we had all of these advertisements um, appreciating and promoting the competency and the quality of food prepared by women um, to the point that we had taken all of their characteristics and fused them into one constructed image um, named Aunt Jemima, who derived from plantation literature um, and the narrative of the Mandy character. Um, and this was a woman, and if we, if we go back a step before Aunt Jemima, just think about how and why African-American women were captured in this Mammy character. And it was because she was a woman who fulfilled a lot of needs in the plantation imagery, right? She was loving and nurturing, but she could also be bossy and surly, and she was competent, but she was ignorant. I mean, there was just these dual messages everywhere I looked about this woman. Um, and I wanted to extract from that character um, – a, a type of truth, the closest I could get to a truth, um, and I continued to run into two messages, one of competence and one of ignorance primarily. Um, and so I started looking through the, looking at the women and their work through the lens of, of whiteness really and food pro and, and in terms of her being a food professional, what would we think about the Mammy and Aunt Jemima character if there was no race or gender involved in the work at all? And what I was able to then do is unfold a type, a level of competency for these women that had not been previously described or um, attributed to them. They, these are people who managed their environments. Um, so they had managerial skills. They must have been organized in order to be able to work in a dirty, dusty kitchen with a hearth that was nearly as high as they were in a plantation kitchen. Um, there were children running around. Um, they had to understand their ingredients and the quality of ingredients. This was a time when women are not going into the refrigerator and taking a dozen large uniform eggs out of a carton. And so there's just so much knowledge that I just was able to extract from who these cooks were once I was able to remove um, the stress on them, really, of, of race. And I was left with no other choice but the word Jemima Code because that's really what it was. There was this encoded message that they were competent, but it was embedded in a construct that said that they were hard laborers or cooked with some kind of a voodoo mystique and magic, which just wasn't true. They had apprenticed on the job, just like every other food professional that we know today. Yeah, when you were talking about that, when you said, like, you were trying to picture them, what what, what if I took the the racial aspect out of it and just looked at what they did? I, I was coming up with the, I, I can't remember her name, but the character in Downton Abbey, who's the cook, and she works in very similar, um, probably slightly better uh, conditions and has to have that same knowledge. But I, I don't know if that resonates with you, but that, that's like who I started visualizing with, who's without the racial element portrayed in, in, in pretty much, you know, she's a little neurotic, but the way you describe it is someone with great knowledge and capability and um, responsibility. Absolutely. And, and I think, again, it, it was natural for 
the term jubilee to uh, flow from that because I was suddenly free of having to read anything onto these cooks other than exactly who they were on face value. I, I didn't have to impart any of the social baggage that we often get hung up on. Um, and that persisted all throughout American history and cookbooks. We went through this terrible phase in the 30s, probably as a backlash to to some of the achievements that African Americans were making, um, and where the publishing community was um, issuing a lot of what I call plantation style cookbooks, um, this with nostalgia for the old fashioned ways. And so they were really um, embedding, memorializing these women as plantation cooks in a head rag over a hearth, um, still laboring with these heavy cast iron pots in the 30s and 40s when. That style of cooking was considered ancient by then. Uh, we were already well into industrialized foods and, and manufacturing, and the food system had changed so dramatically, and yet cookbooks and history books were largely still portraying these women with this peculiar plantation message. And so what was fascinating to me was to begin to collect African-American cookbooks that were published back to 1827 and discover that the cooks and obviously the white women in their communities who must have helped them get published um, were producing a counter narrative to that story. And so they were identifying themselves by the values and the virtues of what they were accomplishing in their kitchens, despite whatever the, the uh, social messaging was about them. It was fascinating. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you about your collection. And one place I want to start just because I think I only sort of recently got familiar with it, and I think most people won't be. But um, so I wanted to ask you about some of your favorite or standout examples of, of cookbooks that you've collected. But could we start with Abby Fisher and who she was and what she represents? Well, Abby Fisher is a fascinating character. And for the for many, many years, she has been thought to be the oldest uh, African-American cookbook author uh, in America. Her, her book was published in 1881, and she was a formerly enslaved woman who moved with her husband to the Bay Area in California. And it was there that they operated a pickles and preserves manufacturing company. And she won awards uh, for her style and the quality of her goods. And so for a long time, her book was, was out there. People, we knew about it. It had been published in um, facsimile. So there were reproductions of it. You could see it. And the scholar Karen Hess rewrote, um, wrote an introduction to the book when it was reissued that helped do some of the early framing of African-American food history and its relationship to Africa. And she describes the Africanisms that Abby Fisher embedded in her recipe book. And so that's a really fascinating place for us to start. But the reality is I discovered once I began the search for the books that there were authors who were published even prior to her. And can you tell us more about what, what those discoveries were? Sure. So um, 
the book that is one of my favorites um, was published 20 years earlier um, in 1866 by Melinda Russell. And Melinda Russell uh, was a free woman of color. And she tells us quite a bit about herself in the brief introduction to her book. Um, she was publishing with a purpose. She wanted to raise enough money to return to her home um, in in eastern Tennessee, and she wanted um, to carry on the recipes or to memorialize the recipes that she had been using in her boarding house. And so here we have this woman who is uh, the mother of a single mother of a handicapped child, and so she teaching us the value of her her work ethic and her understanding of that. But we're also learning that she was an entrepreneur. She was a woman that operated her own business, which means that she would have understood business 101 skills. Um, and then on top of that, she was a marvelous cook. And one of my favorite recipes in Jubilee in the collection uh, that I have embraced as, you know, part of my family's traditions is her lemon tea cake. And it is essentially a very tart, um, su sweet tart um, pound cake, but it is dense and rich and bursting with the vibrancy of what we are calling Meyer lemons today, but they were just, you know, the beautiful citrus that once existed um, um, that came out of Florida. And so she, she just um, personifies for me this, the contrast to the Angemama stereotype, and that's one reason why she's just so important to me in this collection. Wow. And so, sorry, you said, remind us again, what, when was Melinda Russell's book published? 18... 66. So Abby Fisher was 1881, and Melinda Russell was in 1866. And Melinda Russell is one of the, the rarest books in the collection. Um, it, it is now... Um, in the, I do not have an original first edition of that book, and there's only one that we know of, um, and it is um, in the possession of the University of Michigan. But what they did for all of us was to reproduce it in um, facsimile, and so we can all see it. Um, I have some of the last few copies that they have um, of it. But I think it's also been digitized now that I say that. But they've, they've digitized it, and so everyone can enjoy it um, because of its fragile state. Um, obviously, it's not, I don't know that it's still available for public, public viewing. And I think you also said that there was a book. Did you say the first book that you're now aware of was something like 1827, so before Melinda Russell? Yes, in 1827, um, in fact, there are two books before Abby, before Melinda Russell, 1827 and 1848. And those are published by men, um, and they are household uh, servants um, and, well, the first one, um, Robert Roberts, was the butler in the governor's mansion in Massachusetts, and the second one in 1848 um, was a, uh, he worked in hotels. And so neither of those were originally thought to be part of an African-American cookbook co catalog, mostly because they are management 
tools, right? They they are there's a lot of instruction for the proper running of a household or proper banquet service in hotels. But those two products, those two books tell us so much about what these men valued and what kinds of messaging they were transferring to the next level of workers. It's so hard for me not to call them employees because we have to remember that this was the time of enslavement. But we are able to hear from Robert Roberts what he thinks is important and what he wants his protégés to understand. There are messages in the book about uh, cleanliness and arriving on time and discipline and um, uh, there are some recipes, um, not many for food products, but uh, some, some recipes for dishes. Well, and that makes such perfect sense to me, because if you look at the canon, the older canon of, you know, when did the first printed cookbooks come out and what were their predecessors and what were they? A lot of them weren't what we would think of as traditional cookbooks. They were books about household management. They might have even been authored by the person who was not the cook or the manager. But going back even several hundred years earlier, with so few people taught to read and write, they would have been authored by someone sort of translating or scribing for the person with the knowledge. And I, so I think that's a fascinating parallel to, to what you're talking about now, and it makes complete sense. It does make complete sense now, but, you know, we have to remember that I've been researching Jemima Code and Jubilee for more than 20 years, and at a time when the African-American experience on paper has historically been one of survival and hard and harsh labor and enslavement and a lot of very negative storytelling, any references to Robert Roberts and his ilk would have been characterized as them creating more servants. And and we, we were unnecessarily fixated, again, using the idea of a code, fixated on the labor part. And, and their enslavement. And all of that is true. I do not try to be Pollyannish about this, and I'm not trying to, as they say, put lipstick on a pig. We have a very difficult um, relationship in this country with our past and its association with enslavement. And it's part of the reason why I can sometimes sound as if I'm really straining hard to tell this story, but it is because there's a balance between appreciation, appropriation, and the disparagement that we have experienced as African Americans across the board when it comes to our food history. And I I don't want to be misunderstood uh, as trying to unnecessarily um amplify or or make slavery sound like it was better or less harsh than it was. What I am trying to do is look within the system as it was and extract an accurate picture of what was accomplished by African Americans in an intensely difficult and in some cases barbaric situation. And and that's the root really of, of what this work reveals. And so to your point, yes, these, the style of household management uh, books for Robert Roberts or hotel management books um, that Thomas Campbell published in 1848, 
they are consistent with what was happening elsewhere in the publishing mainstream. But those attributes were not equally assigned to the publishing when it came to African-Americans. We were thought to be just making more servants. And, and it's, so it's true, but it's hard. <laughs> No, I think what you're you're saying and those distinctions are pretty crystal clear in that you're not trying to rewrite any narrative of slavery other than to say that just because you were a slave did not mean you did not have skills and make a, a, a significant contribution. Obviously, it went on for so long that you're, you're trying to show this full portrait of sort of reframing the, the narrative of what it meant to be a slave as a fully rounded person and not just in, I don't know, a statistic of a horribly brutal system. Right. Or as someone who was mindlessly just following instructions um, with no thoughts of your own and no contributions. And so I'm, I'm thrilled that that's your interpretation and that my message is resonating and, and it is coming through through the recipes um, and that's what why I'm able to call it for a celebration, right? I raised children in the suburban schools. Um, I integrated schools in Los Angeles. And so I know firsthand how that feels to be in a setting where the, the history is so negative and, and you're left there with your identity, you know, in pieces trying to, to understand what your contribution is your family, your culture's contribution is in this larger story that's being told. And that's why this work means so much to me. But as a journalist, it was important for me to to be subjective to the extent that I could, or objective, I apologize, to be objective to the extent that I could um, and make sure that if there were areas that were going to be rewritten or reevaluated, that they, it was done so from a fact-based perspective. Well, I think you've succeeded. <laughs> Great. So who are your unsung heroes in American cooking? What are some of your family's favorite celebration dishes? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at joyachildfoundation.org and let us know. After the break, Tony's going to reveal her Julia moment. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Tony, your turn. What's your Julia moment? All right. Well, I have to say that I have two. And one relates directly to Julia herself and that when I was a very young uh, food journalist just beginning, maybe in my first year or two, I was invited to a food conference in Northern California, Santa Barbara, where Julia was living. It was a nutrition conference. And she surprised the entire group and showed up at one of the meetings that we were holding. And she sat in the back for the longest time. And then she stood up and in her way, she said, isn't anyone going to say that food just tastes good? And that stuck with me for so long. And it also is part of my 
my pursuit, right, for my work is, is making sure that the African-American messaging is that our food tastes good. And it's not just this thing that was created in survival and in a sorrowful kitchen. It's a wonderful canon to celebrate and to enjoy. So she gave that to me within the very first few years of my career. But what I want to say that will be surprising to Julia fans is that there was actually an African-American chef with a cooking show 20 years before Julia was first on air. And her name was Lena Richard. And she was in New Orleans. And unfortunately, we don't, we are, they're still unable to find any of the footage, but there are still, you can see them online. It is spectacular to know that an African-American chef was, her work was being promoted on television during the 1940s and Thank you very much for that, Tony. And thanks and thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me and uh, helping me promote this really incredible message that we have to enjoy now um, with more research. Well, congratulations on the great reception the book's already gotten. And uh, we look forward to seeing where the journey leads you. And uh, thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. The book, again, is Jubilee Recipes from Two Centuries of African-American Cooking by Tony Tipton Martin, out now from Clarkson Potter. Look for it and ask for it at your favorite bookselling source. Follow Tony on Twitter. It's at the Jemima Code and at Tony Tipton Martin on Instagram and Tony's T-O-N-I. To explore more of her work, go to TonyTiptonMartin.com. To keep on learning about culinary history, follow us at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission, as always, from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really does help new listeners discover the show. And if you can do it on iTunes or Apple Podcast, that helps all the more. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>